This episode of Brand Growth Heroes is supported by Strong Roots. Strong Roots believes food can be better for you and for the planet. Their end goal? To fix the freezer aisle for good. I love Strong Roots for so many reasons, but particularly because their exciting product innovation and inspired branding has revolutionised freezer aisles across the globe in only six years. So this season, with Strong Roots support, Brand Growth Heroes will continue to champion the founders of insurgent brands on their own scale-up journey. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. Welcome to Brand Growth Heroes, the podcast that explores how insurgent brands in consumer goods categories are driving transformational growth. Here our guests talk not only about their brand purpose or why, but also how where they play, who they employ, and how they work has driven their incredible success. Today's guest is Mike Stevens, a CPG lifer, serial entrepreneur, and now a best-selling author. As co-founder of Peppersmith, the original healthy confectionery brand, Mike has been immersed in mastering the direct-to-consumer channel for more time than the majority of us, 12 years to be exact. In fact, Peppersmith was even one of the first food brands sold on Amazon. Mike has recently written the book he wishes was available when he was navigating how to sell his brand online, and I can highly recommend it. Called the D2C Playbook, it explores all of the learnings he has pulled from a series of interviews with founders of some of the most famous and successful D2C brands out there right now, as well as his own insight and experience. In this episode, you'll learn how he successfully grew Peppersmith and some of the delicious tricks to direct to consumer business that you'll find in his new book. Mike Stevens, welcome to Brand Growth Heroes. How are you doing today? Doing great, Fiona. It's really lovely to see you. Are you working from home? I am in my little office in the front of our house. So I, I moved down to Paul about three years ago. So I've got this, um, yeah, we've got this lovely house just by the sea. Um, but I'm in this little office that doesn't face the sea. In fact, I'm facing the room at the moment. So, you know, it's, it's nice down here, but it does rain. So, Mike, you are a CPG lifer, you are a serial founder, and you've recently written a best-selling book called The Direct-to-Consumer Playbook. And that is one of the main reasons that we've got you on the show today, and we're going to get to that a little bit later. But I was wondering, would you mind taking us back to the very beginning and just telling us how did you get into CPG and what has motivated you to really try and learn as much as you can about how to be a great founder and run a successful business? Yeah, I, I like that question because it really does put everything into context. I've been in CPG now for consumer goods for 21 years, which seems like a long time. So it's good to think about how on earth that happened because <clears throat> I had, didn't set out to be um, yeah, a consumer goods person. I mean, I, I was just one of these people, you know, when you leave university, you don't really know what you, you're going to do. Apart from I did have one aim when I left university and that was to start, start my own business. And I don't know why I, I wanted to do that. I think I'm just a bit of a rebel and I didn't want to just be on the um, on the treadmill. Um, so it's like, wouldn't it be fun to have your own business? And this was back in the day when, you know, sort of startups and startups didn't really have a name. Founders didn't really have a name. It was just like, oh, you could sort of be an entrepreneur, but what the hell does that mean? A good friend of mine, who someone who I went to school with, he was at a company in Southwest London who made smoothies. And um, you probably guessed who that company was. So I was introduced right at the very start to the Innocent Gang, which was, I mean, it was just a stroke of luck. So what age were you at this point? So I was 25, 26. I sort of, the Innocent started in 1999 uh, and I got the call at the end of 2000. 
Wow. So you were right at the beginning. Yeah, things are going well. Um, uh, we need some help. And uh, I guess my area of uh, expertise at that time was operations, um, operation process systems. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm quite um, numerate and sort of process driven. So it's like, oh, can you come and help us with our ops? And um, with the ops role, I didn't find that exciting in itself. But what I did find exciting was like, wow, here is a bona fide startup. Yeah, mm-hmm. a new business. And I remember my first day there, um, I phoned back to one of my old colleagues and I was so excited. It's like, look, they've even got this like this system that turns faxes into emails. You know, <laughs> can you imagine using that? Just, just all the little, you know, the tools that you have. It's like, oh, I like the, you know. And, it, and that's what joining Innocent was about for me. It was about learning. So my plan um, at Innocent was to be there for two or three years just to find out, you know, what happens in a sort of a, a new business. What, what, you know, how does a startup work? And then go and do my own thing. Little did I know, and that's just the luck of the draw, that I had joined one of the most exciting startups and still the most um, sort of startup stories in the last 20 or 30 years. So um, rather than being there for two or three years, I was there for eight. And the reason I was there for so long was just, um, you know, it was just a fantastic place to work, to learn. We achieved so much. There was so much going on. Uh, and then it, and it was also loads and loads of fun. So we're just, you know, we have a great group of people who are working hard, achieving a lot, having a great laugh. It was just it was a good place to be, but it always was a matter of when, not if, that I was going to jump and do my own thing. And you finished up, was it country manager in the Nordics or the head of ops? It was quite a big job, wasn't it? Yeah, that's no, so what happened. I um, So when I joined, I was like the supply chain ops guy, the one person. Hilarious. Uh, and then as the business grew, you know, that operations function grew and grew. Uh, and I sort of, you know, it was my job to run it for um, the, I think it was the first six years I was at Innocent. So, you know, I was head of the operations. Um, but then, you know, I was managing factories, managing logistics, managing customer service. Unbelievable grounding. All of the things you do. And it was all happening so fast. I didn't have time to think about it. It's like, oh, look at all this responsibility and what a great job this is. It was just like, this this stuff needs to be done. So I'm going to do it. Hey, everyone. A quick break to mention something very exciting that's coming up soon. Get yourselves to London for the 19th and 20th of July, 2022. It's only the date of the biggest and best food and beverage industry conference of the year, Bread and Jam Fest. This year, it's live and in person, and it's being held at the Business Design Centre in Islington. Most of you know that Bread & Jam supports emerging and scaling brands, and they're expecting over 700 brands over the two days for their talks, workshops, and investment and retail pitch opportunities. I'm going to be there for both days, hosting lots of panels, interviews, and even doing a workshop on how to beat your competition, which I'd love to see you at. My great friends over at Bread & Jam have offered all listeners of Brand Growth Heroes a special price, so get ready to write this down. Go to their website at www.breadandjamfest.com, buy your tickets and add this code at the checkout, Brand Growth Heroes 120. There's two H's in there, one at the end of growth and one at the beginning of heroes. So Brand Growth Heroes 120. Get yourself down to London for the two best days you'll spend this year. Our guest today on the show, Mike Stevens, will also be there. He's going to be chairing a panel on how to win in direct-to-consumer. Get your tickets and make sure you stop to say hello to us both. Anyway, so the reason I stopped doing operations and moved on to, um, I became a country manager 
So help launch the well, I launched the brand in Norway and Finland and helping with the launch in um, Sweden and Denmark as well, alongside uh, Emma Hill from Lucky Saint. So, you know, we know each other very well from that. And um, but the reason I did the country manager stuff is because I, I'm always, I'm just a generalist. I'm not an ops person. I'm not a finance person. I'm not a pure marketeer. I'm not a salesperson. I'm a bit of everything. Right. Um, and, and uh, you know, Innocent grew to this, such a size, so successful. They really need specialists in all the roles. So you need that specialist ops person, finance person, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just, um, you know, I, I don't know if I was that, but I certainly didn't want to be that. So the country manager was just a brilliant opportunity um, to test out all the things I've learned. Essentially, it was like it was my um, uh, it was my audition to be a founder because that you know that's what I was doing. But you know, for uh, for another company, for Innocent, so I did that for about I think it was about eighteen months. Um, but then you know I was really confident that like I think I can give this a go. So it was a, a me and a, another chap that I met at Innocent called uh, Dan Trimson. And I was looking all the time, probably for the last five years I was at Innocent, I was trying to pick who were the individual, the individuals who might like to come along with me and start start my own business. So you were really quite driven and analytical about this from the very beginning. It wasn't just like a whim at a certain point. Oh, I think I'll set up a new business. You were like, from the very beginning, this was your master plan. Uh, yeah. I would, and do you know what? I wouldn't call it a master plan because, it, you know, it wasn't a plot. It, <laughs> it, it, it was a desire. I know, but still, I think it just shows you were quite a driven and focused and a particular type of individual who even has that, even if it's a gentle plan at the back of their head, you know, and I think that's an important thing to pull out. It's quite cool. I mean, I'm giving you kudos for that because I think most people coast at that point and they just enjoy their job and get on with it. So you pulled out this guy and you thought this might be someone who is going to be a partner for me. Yeah, and, and what was special about Dan? I mean, Dan, I guess Dan was a bit like me in terms of, um, you know, he had sort of certain skills. He started at Innocent. He was like the, um, he was the accountant assistant when he started. So he was like, oh, he was like a, a creative um, accountant. I'm like a creative ops person. Um, you know, essentially, actually, when Dan finished at Innocent and he went on to actually work for uh, JKR, the uh, the branding agency before we started Peppersmith, you know, he became a fully-fledged, you know, bona fide marketeer. God, isn't that funny? I bet you there's very few of those in the industry, people who've come from accountancy and gone into a pure creative role. I mean, that's a really marketing-focused role. That's really unusual, isn't it? Well, you know, I let you into a secret. Um, yeah, eventually at Peppersmith, I ended up doing the accounts and I think Dan's a better marketer. Okay, that's amazing. So, uh, so Dan, Dan found his calling as a marketer and he's, you know, he's, he, he's a great one. And also, you know, he, he now helps um, other founding businesses. So me and Dan decided that we were going to take on the confectionery industry. And the reason we looked towards confectionery was because at Innocent, it, you know, we, we were just riding the crest of this wave in terms of how the food and drink industry was changing. And the big themes were more natural products, more products that are better for you, you know, sort of take out the crap that we really shouldn't be eating, products that were sustainable. So even, you know, even back in, you know, the 2000s, we were thinking about how to do this properly and more responsibly. And then uh, the other key component, and you can see this with Innocent, was a brand to tell the story. You know, you have to have a strong brand to tell you, you know, why why is this stuff so much so different? What is different about a bottle of Innocent than a bottle of Tropicana or even a bottle of Coke? And you have to have, you know, the brand story. Because, you know, consumer, you know consumers, we're, we're, we're busy, distracted people. 
you know, so you really need to have strong messages and accessible messages and, f- and make it fun um, to actually get to, you know, to get to get the word out. So I, we learned all that at Innocent. It's like, but, and then we've got um, look at all the other food drink categories. They were all changing the same, whether it was bread or, you know, crisps or milk or eggs and everything, ice cream, everything was changing apart from one category, confectionery. So confectionery was still dominated by these huge multinational companies who had been doing their thing for not dozens of years, hundreds of years. So the likes of Nestle and Cadbury's and Mars. I mean, you, you know, you know their founding stories that those, those companies were set up in the last century or even the century before. They were the insurgent brands back then. That's the interesting thing. Oh, yeah, they were great. Yeah, and, and great and great companies. And you know, and I and I and it's not for me to say they were doing a bad job, but they they did their job in a in a very particular way. And what they like to do is make really, you know, high volume, low cost. And the way you get to high volume, low cost is you make lots of compromises uh, in terms of ingredients and packaging and the way you do things. And that and that just didn't fit, fit with our ethos of being a you know, natural, sustainable, healthy. It's like you can't do that. If you if you want to just use loads of sugar and you know chemicals and crappy ingredients, so we looked at confectionery and the products that we started off with. It was really the antithesis of what we were doing at Innocent and what we wanted to do, and that was chewing gum. Now chewing gum, if you and still is today, you know, a lot of chewing. Pick up a you know a pack of Wrigley's and it's like to look at chemistry set on the back. All these funky ingredients, you don't know what they are. You don't trust them. Is it is it really good for you? Is it rubber? Is it plastic? Is it rubber? Is it a plastic? Yes. So, so we found a way, and this was back in, well, we first figured out how to do it in 2008 and we launched the, the business in, in 2009 and the first product was on shelf on January, like January the 1st, 2010 is when it all, all launched. But we found a way to make chewing gum out of natural rubber instead of plastic. But it wasn't just about, oh, this is plastic free chewing gum. And, not, and that wasn't really motivating to a lot of people at the time anyway. It was about, you know, we are just going to use more natural ingredients and also make this stuff good for you. And the way we made it good for you is we um, discovered via, you know, lots of contacts we uh, ended up making in Scandinavia where chewing gum is a big thing. This amazing ingredient called xylitol, which more and more people have heard of now. We're going to launch in perfection, Ray, where it's all about um, sort of low cost and sugar. And that was our starting point. Let's jump ahead to the point where you realised you were going to have to go online. What stage was the business at at that point? And how did you make your first steps into direct-to-consumer sales? Because that ended up being about 30% of your revenue, didn't it? A really early doors. And you became quite famous for that. It did. But, you know, and it, and it, uh, it was the plan and it wasn't the plan. So let me explain. So we went D2C day one, but we weren't thinking about D2C. We weren't a D2C business. Our whole strategy was built around resale distribution. And that's what we knew, you know, we, it was all about getting products into shops and especially with a product like, um, like chewing gum and mints, where it is an impulse buy. It's, you know, it's, it's not a product. I think, oh, that's a good D2C opportunity. But the reason we had a little shop on our website from day one was all about access. So we knew as a new brand um, that, you know, it's impossible to get into um, lots of stores quickly. It's going to take time, right? Uh, and our strategy, which is still a good one today for anyone who wants to launch a, you know, a, um, a food product, is you start off small, so you hit your in your vicinity. Um, we're lucky for us; it was London. So, but you hit you hit your locals, your delis, your coffee shops, your cafes, 
um, you know, with your products. Does it work there? I mean, that's sort of your market test. And if it does, then you can start looking at some of the yeah, a slightly bigger chains, but still a small one for us. It was um, you know, some of the health food chains and that whole foods market was a big one. And then if it works there, then you can start actually talking to some of the nationals. And we, we were lucky sort of um, nine months or so after a launch, we managed to get into Waitrose. But, you know, that was always the plan. So it was also, we had this resale step-by-step plan and not direct-to-consumer. But the reason we had direct-to-consumer is because we knew that, you know, for most people to find a product on shelf, it's actually going to be quite hard, you know, most of the country doesn't live in London, and um, yeah, we you know to find access to it, you know, even if we're in Waitrose, so what? Not everyone has a Waitrose near them. So what we um, we had a strong desire to do is for anyone who'd heard of the brand, and we were lucky, we got some nice PR as well. Um, at least they could jump on the website, read about it. Oh, that looks interesting, and then lo and behold, there's a little buy now button. We set up a you know a really really simple rudimentary web shop off the shelf free you know with our WordPress site um, but there was a buy now button and a, a link to PayPal. And who was doing this at the time? Who else was doing this? DTC started to be. I mean, we you know we didn't think we were that radical at the time to, to do it, but I guess we didn't have a DTC strategy. All we had was let's make sure anyone who wants this product can get hold of it strategy. But I suppose the point I'm trying to make is many of our listeners, they weren't necessarily working in this industry back then. And what year is this now that we're talking about? We launched um, January 2010. 2010. So in 2010, there weren't that many brands buying online and selling online and people didn't buy a huge amount of food items online. So you would have been one of a few consumer goods brands that were selling online that had a web shop, right? Yeah, I, I guess so. And that's, you know, because we're, we're, and we were lucky. We were food and drink, but, you know, we, we had a light ambient product. So that sort of made it easy for us to, to pack up a few boxes and take it to the post office. I mean, if we had something that was chilled or frozen or, or big and bulky or liquid, you know, that's a different thing. So we, I guess we had the ability to do that. And I love that actually working, you know, I think back to my supply chain days at Innocent, where it was like chilled liquid that um, when I started, it was like, sort of, you know, eight to 10 day shelf life. I was going to ask you that question earlier, actually, and not to get off the topic where we are now, but when you started at Innocent, the shelf life there, you've just said it was eight to 10 days. What was it when you finished? Uh, we, uh, oh, uh, and this was a lot of investment into, into production processing. And it's all about just keeping the lines clean. Uh, I think, you know, with Tetra Pak, I managed to get up to like 45 days. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it, the difference? And I don't know what it is now. It's probably even longer as, you know, as technology changes. But yeah, so just about keeping the bugs out. It's not about zapping it with weird stuff. So anyone who's worried about, oh, what are those guys doing? No, absolutely. Okay, so it's 2010. You have this really simple web store. And one of the things you say in your book, which we're going to get onto in a little minute, is that there was no real consultants or advisors or anyone who really understood D2C very well at that point or how to master online store building. So you had to learn it all yourself from scratch, right? We did. At the start, it was just making sure we could do the basics. It was only around, I'd say, probably around 2013, 2014. Now, what happened was, um, you know, so we had our little web shop in the background and that was that was just organically growing. We didn't, you know, again, we didn't put that much effort into it, but it was, you know, turning out to be, a, you know, a nice channel for us. We also had launched on Amazon. We were one of the first food products to launch on Amazon and that was going really well. But in the meantime, but still our strategy, our focus was let's get um, retail distribution. And, you know, and we did 
you know, we did a good job. We got into Boots, we were in Sainsbury's, we were in Waitrose, we were in Hollander Barra, um, and we're still knocking on the lock, you know, can we talk to Tesco and, uh, you know, who else is out there? Um, but what we found, even though we were successful, right, it was still really hard. You know, the retailers, it was hard to convince them that, you know, you know they should put more of our products onto the shelf. There was a, and there was a lot of reasons for that. Was, you know, some of it was about, you know, is there enough consumer demand? There's also, can we support those categories? And, you know, they were used to getting lots of support from the likes of, you know, from from Kraft Cadbury's and Nestle and Mars. You can you can imagine, you you know, you look at a, um, a, a confectionery fixture, you know who the players are there. We were sort of this weird outlier. So, you know, for us, it's, to retail, we, you know, we did a good job, but it was becoming harder and harder to get the distribution that we wanted. And at the same time, we were getting more and more sales online without trying. So I guess, you know, we uh, uh, we had this light bulb went off one day. It's like, if retail's getting hard, D2C seems to be easier and um, it's growing and we're not trying. Why don't we invest more time and effort into D2C? Uh, and it was at that point where it was like, okay, that seems like a good idea. How do we do it? Um, and what I did at that time was like, you know, I... Um, I just tried, you know, obviously we tried to figure it out, but also I was talking to a lot of my, um, you know, sort of founder, my peer founders, you know, other food and drink companies or consumer goods companies. It's like, oh, you're doing a bit of D2C. How are you, you know, what are you doing? And, you know, there was various different tactics and I learned things like, you know, what does lifetime value mean? And, you know, uh, customer acquisition costs and all these things that, you know, this it was alien to me at the time. But, you know, one theme just came out loud and clear is that no one really knew we were all, all of us were learning on the job. There was only one company that, you know, was down the road from us who, who we knew quite well, who seemed to be doing something very different. And that was Gray's. Uh, but, you know, one of the reasons Gray's was different to everyone else because they had set up purely as a direct consumer business, whereas everyone else, it was, you know, D2C, which is another channel. And then so we started learning how to do this stuff. But I still had this hunch and this desire or this, this feeling like, yeah, there's, there's more to learn. Why can't I just buy the book to tell me how to do this? And, you know, you've got to be realistic about that because D2C was still quite a new thing. It's like, yeah, and this hasn't been around for very long. So, yeah, fair enough. There's not a lot of uh, literature or best practice out there. But, man, I wish there was. So, anyhow, so sort of wind forward. So we did direct consumer for a number of years. It turned out to be about, as you said, about 30% of the business, which was pretty amazing given, again, that we're selling you know, impulse products. Um, but the reason it worked so well is because of this health benefit we had. So you know, we had a lot of customers and still do who believe um, you know, to get that. And it's, this is true. If you want the, uh, the dental health benefits of Peppersmith, not only is it a nice thing to have every day, you need to, ta- you need to have a, a, you know, a couple of uh, uh, pieces of chewing gum or some mints every day. So we essentially were selling it in bulk. Um, and, and we, and we did that for a number of years. So, you know, so D, yeah, we had a successful, um, D2C operation. It was a really important channel for us. Uh, it was still, but it was a third. So the other sort of two thirds of the business was still retail, but anyhow, I was really proud of that. And the other thing I, you know, uh, we think about D2C, I love D2C. And the reason I love D2C so much is because, you know, you have that direct transaction and communication with the end consumer. When you sell your products to the shops, your shops are your customer. You do what you can to please your customer, which are the shops. What you're not doing so much is you know, pleasing your consumer. I mean, you have to do that, but really it's about your relationship with, with the shops. I loved having that direct relationship with the consumers, 
because you know I'm probably uh, it, it's it's fun it's more fulfilling but also you can find out so much more so let's get to how did you decide then to sell the business and then how did you end up deciding to write a book the short version of this so in 2016 we had a bit of a hit to the business and that was caused by this thing called Brexit. Uh, some of you might have heard of it. And the reason it was so painful uh, to us at Peppersmith is, you know, we were having, we were making all of our products in uh, sort of continental Europe. Uh, and the reason for that is there's not, you know, for those of you who know the confectionery industry, there's not a lot of chewing gum or mint factories in the UK. Um, so we were sourcing all our expertise um, out in the continent. And in the, in the pre-Brexit Brexit world, um, that was great. It's free trade. It all made, made perfect sense. But also importantly, um, when Brexit happens, you know, for those of you who might remember this, the pound took a real kick in against the euro. So we all of a sudden, we swung from quite a profitable business into a loss-making business pretty much overnight. So that was a real kicker. And and it was just about that. Uh, it was that sort of period of time as well where we'd figured out, you know what, we've done all right, but we are still having to battle against these big confectionery giants. We need more funds in the business. We raised a, a, you know, essentially an angel seed round right at the very start, and that's all we'd ever raised. Okay, let's let's go for it. Let's try and raise some more money. But what happened was we had sort of the business had, had sort of plateaued a bit, and then margins went in the wrong direction. Yeah, so then you couldn't raise the money. So we couldn't raise the money. It's like oh, and you know, and we got got to the stage where actually thought we were going to raise the money. So was it going to be okay? And then that didn't happen. And actually, I got to the stage where I had about seven months to save the business because we you know all the money that we did have, the you know the profit that we had made. That doesn't last for very long, right? I uh, had to do a, a few things and change the business, but you know, the good there was a, there was a happy ending. It, it worked, so I managed to stabilize the business. And then we got to the point. This was sort of 2017, 2018. It's like, what do we do? We still need more money, you know, if we're going to make this thing a you know a real success. So we went for a, another investment round, and it was in that round that um, you know we were introduced to someone who's like, who said, like Mike, um, yeah really like your business, don't want to invest, but you're interested in selling it. And I was like, oh God, I didn't think I'd be here now, especially while the business, you know, it was, you know, by all metrics, a success, but not a superstar. So what what do we do here? Well, you know, a few things have happened. Two years previously, um, my co-founder, Dan, he had actually left the business because he went back to Ireland with with, with his wife um, to start a family, and that was um, you know that was all amicable and yeah there was no weirdness in that other than yeah I sort of I'd lost my um, right hand man my right hand man my business partner so it's like ooh okay things have changed and then there was um, and, and then obviously there, and there's still loads of uncertainty in the market it was it was really tough so what happened was when someone you know when we got the offer to buy the business. Uh, the real decision for me was, right, if I take investment, I'm in this for another seven-year cycle, the way he looks at it, not five to seven years. If I take investment, I'm going to have to commit to this thing for five or seven years. And I was uncertain, even with a bit of investment, if we were still going to be able to compete with the likes of Wrigley's and whoever to, you know, to achieve all the things we wanted to do. So all that was a big one. And also, you know, Dan had left, so I was on my own. So, like, so if I do this, I'm also going to have to do it on my, by myself, which is not as fun. When we got the offer to sell, sell the business, it's like, okay, 
I'm actually going to have to take that quite seriously because I'm not sure I want to do this for another seven years. And actually, I want to leave London. You know, we were planning to move to the coast, which, you know, the, the you know, Selenet allowed us to do. But this is the real thing for me is I wanted to do some other stuff. You can probably hear from, yeah, from my background. I'm not a specialist, so I'm going to do some other stuff. So I was like, right, okay, here's the opportunity to take a step away. And it wasn't, you know, writing the big check so we can all live happily ever after. It was just like, it was another step on the journey of my career and my life. So, where you know, and that was offered to me. And, you know, it just made sense at the time to take it. So we sold the business in 2018. Uh, I committed to work for the business um, for another year. Uh, at least. And that was really important because, you know, we had a great little team and I just didn't want to say to them, right, thanks for everything. I'm off. So it was, it was a part of it, looking after them and transitioning the business into a, into a, a, a bigger company. Um, and I ended up, I worked for um, uh, full time for Peppersmith for another year. And then I was in the background doing some other stuff for them for, for another year after that. But now since that 2020, I have nothing to do with the brand and that enables me to do the other stuff that I love doing. So I help other businesses. Um, I do various things. I've got some side projects, uh, but also started writing this book. So I definitely want to come back to the Peppersmith story after we've talked about the book, because I want to know after everything that you've learned throughout your own journey in Peppersmith and after having talked to all of the founders that you talked to, to write the book, what would you have done differently? But we'll come back to that. Okay. So probably one of the reasons that lots of listeners are listening to this is because they want to hear about the book, which I can highly recommend, by the way, everyone. I have it beside the bed at the moment and it is just fabulous. It's really well written. It's really interesting. You've got some fabulous brands that you've talked to on there. Bloom and Wild, Huel. Who else have we got? Suguru. Who else, Mike? You got Towels, you got Cornerstone, you got Snag, you got Casper, Heights, Allbirds, Ugly. And do you know what I love? The chapters aren't too long. It's written in really easy to understand language. It's really fabulous. So well done. I'm really enjoying it. Why did you decide to write this book really quickly? And then what did you learn along the way? So, I mean, the motivation for writing this, I got asked this a lot, especially by um, uh, by sort of publishers and other people. It's like, Mike, what are you doing? And the reason I wrote the book is because the book that I wanted, you know, lots of lots of founders start a business to solve a problem they've had, right? And it was the same with the same with this book. So, yeah, this is the book that I, you know, I really wanted. That's exactly why I have written the Growth Strategy Program because nobody was ever able to explain to me how to write a business strategy, how to write a business strategy that was going to be able to build a business that could compete effectively and be profitable. So it's the same kind of thing. It's not to make your millions or make money. It's just because it's an itch you've got to scratch, right? Yeah, yeah. Two, well, two things. It's an itch you've got to scratch yourself. It's like you want to answer this, but also the reason to do it and to, it is about sharing it because you just know it's going to help so many other people. It's like, you know, you're not the only one who doesn't know this stuff because none of us do, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you're just trying to figure it out bit by bit by bit until you've got something coherent that basically makes sense, right? That's it. So, but you know, when I, when I had the chance, when I, when I sold Peppersmith, I had the chance to do this and it was like, it was a window. I've got this small window where I can dedicate a bit of time and I needed some downtime from Peppersmith as well. I wasn't ready to do my, you know, the, the next thing, you know, the next business um, right away then. It's like, you know, and the, and, the, and the book was, you know, a, a perfect thing to do in the meantime. So I committed to, to writing this book um, because I thought it'd be help. And, you know, anyone who's got this aspiration to write a book, um, I think you need to look, you know, be very careful on your motivations because if your motivation is... Uh, 
I want to be famous. I want to make money. Guess what? We all know the answer to that. <laughs> you're not going to be JK Rowling um, or Seth Godin or who, yeah, whoever you're, um, yeah, you, you look up to. And is it as painful as I imagine it to be, the sitting down and writing? I don't want to say painful. It's just hard work. It's hard work and you know, and this is and this is the bad bit when you're even writing the book, you know you're not going to get well rewarded for it in terms of, you know, in, in terms of your financial rewards. You know, all the rewards you get are going to be sort of indirect. Uh, and the biggest one for me is that, you know, I wanted to write this book to, just to see if I had it in me. You know, can I do it? For me, it was like, I, I approached it in the same way of, you know, I run through marathons and stuff. It's like, I didn't know if I could run a marathon, but you don't know until you try. I love that. I absolutely love that. It was a personal challenge. If you're the smart founder of a scaling grocery brand and you're inspired by what you learn on Brand Growth Heroes, why not check out our online business accelerator for founders who want to take their growth to the next level? The Growth Strategy Program is a six-week online learning course which offers a suite of bespoke lessons, tools, one-to-one coaching, group workshops, and access to a growing network of support from smart founders of grocery brands just like you. You can find out more by going to fionafitzconsulting.com and then clicking online courses. Then just press register your interest today. Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. So what are the really big learnings after talking to all of these founders? And I'm sure this is all stuff that you knew, but what was crystallized for you? And what are the big insights and light bulb moments that you'd like people to have when they're reading this book that you're hoping those other founders are going to stop struggling on certain subjects and kind of go, oh, okay. Oh, it's so fun just talking to all the different founders about, you know, what, you know, their approaches and their products and their, and their background. And, and, you know, what I try to do is bring together the themes because what I didn't want to do is that, you know, we did, uh, you know, learn a lot about direct to consumer at Peppersmith, but I didn't just want to say, Oh, I've learned all this stuff at Peppersmith and, you know, and this is how you should do it because it's the way I did it. Um, because I knew that, you know, we were only scratching the surface and there's always different ways to do things right. So it was really important that I went and you know, spoke to the sort of the best in class founders of, you know, successful D2C companies. And then, because what I want to do, if there's themes that run through all of them, that's probably really valid. It's when you start hearing the same thing over and over again, you know that you're onto something. So what were the things that you heard over and over again? Well, and this is, this is, um, it's about products and it's about mission and it's about founders is the biggest one. So all the founders that I interviewed, they all had one really common thing in common. And that's what they wanted to solve problems. They want to make things better. And the way they did that is by having products that solve the problem and they serve their customers really, really well. And when they found out they weren't serving their customers well, they changed what they were doing. And this is one of the things that D2C allows you to do is it allows you to get really rapid uh, information from your customers, you know, in terms of, are you doing the right thing? And you can iterate. And that's not only just about product; it's about your pricing. It's about the way that you talk to your customers, the issue marketing messages, all of that stuff out, you can find really quickly. So all of the founders were really good and passionate about reacting to that information. And probably really curious, right? Because the reason I bring that up is that when I'm talking to the founders who come on the Growth Strategy Programme, I'm always really surprised just how few of them speak to their own consumers or customers every week. And what I think is so important is that you get this absolutely insatiable curiosity to understand 
how your consumers, why they're buying your product, why they're fans of your product, particularly those super fans, the super consumers who buy you a time and time again. What is it that you're satisfying for them better than alternatives uh, so that you can go out and find more people just like them? It's amazing. And Gina, I know I listened to your interview with... Um with Freddie from Wild um, the other week and and you you seem quite surprised that he like enjoyed talking to his consumers. But it's only because nobody does. Honestly, very few people do. In D2C, you have to do it. It's second nature. Um, and, you know, and it's one of, the, one of the real advantages that you have. I mean, and, you know, and it's not just, um, you know, setting up, you know, that you've got, because you've got this relationship with your, your customers, you can see what they're doing, see what products they're ordering, you see, you know, their frequency, you can set up customer surveys um, with, with, your, with, your, with your customers. So that's really information. But it's also picking up the phone when they've got a complaint. Uh, yeah, I ordered this product and, you know, it hasn't arrived. What are you guys up to? Um, quickly solve that problem. Yeah, get that problem solved for them as quickly as possible and, and, and in the right way. But then you've got them on the end of the phone. You can have a chat to them. It's like, ah, how did you find us? What, you know, what are you into? What products do you buy? What, what, what more do you want? What do you think of our new packaging? Um, did you understand this? Wow. You can just have that chat. There's a great example in the book of what happens when you don't do this as well. So, so Tails.com, the the pet food company, who've done an amazing job. They're, they're just a brilliant business. But at the very start, they nearly shut their doors six months after starting. And that's because it looked like the business wasn't working. And the reason it wasn't working is because they weren't talking to their customers. Okay. And what didn't they learn by not talking to their customers? They didn't understand what the customers wanted from them. They had this great product, but they didn't know how to serve their customers properly. Okay. Well, I'm going to go and read that chapter after this. Oh, it's, it's, it's so brilliant. So, I mean, they were, you know, they, oh, we've blown it. You know, we've invested all of this money. They had this sort of state-of-the-art bespoke factory they, they built for nothing and a brilliant team. They should have they should have been crushing it, but they weren't. Uh, and what they were doing wrong is not talking to their, their customers. Uh, but the, the second they, that changed and they started talking to their customers, um, you know, their business just turned around and they went from this is not working to this is amazing. What did they do differently? What was the insight? The real insight was an emotional thing, right? Their customers, who were all who were all dog lovers, um, didn't believe that Taos cared. So they didn't believe that they, they thought it was just really transactional. Um, so it was only when they started talking to them, it's like, yeah, of course we care and we, we can help. And we can, you know, we're really interested in you and your pets. Uh, and the the other thing they found is that they they were getting some basics wrong as well in terms of you know they were had some problems with their algorithm. So some customers were getting too little, some were not getting enough. Um, it, the customers found it really hard to know when they were going to get a, you know a repeat the next order on their subscription model. So just you know some 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 of the UX journey on the screen they, they hadn't asked. So um, you know it was just asking the what do you what do you want from us? So getting the um, I guess getting some of the operational bits right, but also that emotional connection with the customers and that made all the difference. So if that's the first big learning, D to C, you've got to be really, really close to your customer, your final consumer. You have got to understand what motivates them, what they need from you. And you've got to be really, really close to them. What's the next big thing? So the, the, the next one, it, it sounds pretty obvious, but it's amazing how many people get this wrong, is, uh, is thinking about your unit economics. Okay, let's talk about that. So making sure that you can make enough margin from your business to be successful and you know and it seems like a, an obvious example now because they've been so they've built such an amazing business but Huel got this right from day one so they had set up their business so they could sell you know a, a bag of uh, their, their Huel um, powder food uh, for 45 pounds 
And the reason the £45 was so important is because it meant that they could afford to make a decent margin, including their delivery. And as it as it happened, they also managed to, um, you know, for first order, they could throw in a shaker and a T-shirt and stuff as well. But yeah, having those UK unit economic calculations from the get-go was important. Because when Julian Secure, and this seems crazy because they're a £100 million you know, sort of megastar business now, but he built that business so it would work with only a 1,000 customers. Wow. So let's break this down then. If you're a founder, usually they're starting with a product that is solving a need for them in their own life. And D2C and being able to afford the delivery charges and then being able to afford the marketing spend on top of that and still have some margin left is generally an afterthought. The gross margin that they started out with gets smaller and smaller and smaller once they realise that the fulfilment company or the Amazon charges plus the Amazon advertising eats into that margin. Should they be starting the other way around? So should they be reverse engineering the product based on the price they think they should be able to charge for it and still have enough margin for all of those demand generating activities and distribution activities? Well, there's reverse engineering, but sometimes it's not possible, right? Because if, you, if you're you know, bringing something new to market, um, it's probably going to cost um, more than what's already out there. Some of that is about you know, economies of scale and there's, you know, other terms, in terms of product makeup. So you're probably going to have to charge a bit more. So what you find, if you try and reverse engineer, it's like, oh, I've got to hit a certain price point because you know, competitor X is hitting that price point. And you try and, you know, try and reverse engineer that, you're not going to start because you just haven't got the same advantage of them. You know, you try and be smart and do things as efficiently as possible. So it's about have you got a product that a consumer is prepared to pay for? However, what you do this and this is the danger um uh, or the, you know the pitfall that I, I see a lot so because a founder thinks he needs to hit a certain price point um but they're making their products more expensive than those competitors that hit that price point it means their margins are going to be smaller and guess what when your margins are smaller you don't have enough money to do any marketing in fact you don't have enough money to actually to have a team so if you can't do any marketing or you, and you don't have the right people and you can't afford to pay the right people on your team, you're not going to be able to build your business. So it really is so important that you allow yourself enough margin um, from really from the get-go. Now, um, Huel did this really well. Another business that I love for so many different reasons is a, a business called Snag. So Snag make, um, make tights and, and other products now, um, started by this amazing entrepreneur called Bree Reed. Um, and you know, she she came from a marketing background, so she knew how much money she had to spend on marketing. And one of the things that she did, she's like, she wasn't going to launch her products until she had, you know, could make enough margin to pay for that marketing on each product. On each product, yeah. So you know, which wasn't talking about sort of lifetime value and trying to eke back the investment on that marketing over time. It was like, yeah, from every sale, I've got to make sure that I can, you know, I think it was twenty five percent. I've got to have twenty five percent of each sale. I'm going to plow that back into into marketing. So that works. And the the other thing in D 2 C, and this is this is the, what happens time and time again as well, is you get um, brands or products that say we're going to do D 2 C. It's going to be great. And even if they get their unit economics right, they find they can't scale because there's only a certain number of customers who are going to come to their website and order their products, especially if it's a food and drink product. The vast majority of people still enjoy the convenience of you know, picking products off shelf or you know, you're on a card or whatever. You just don't have the time 
to uh, in, you know to go to every single website and order products. And even if you're on subscription, it's like you know you still have to you know look at your subscriptions. Oh, whenever I got my next subscription, do I need it? Do I need to delay it? Do I need it sooner? Um, you know, there's still that interaction, that efforts. That's why Amazon is so beautiful, right? As much as I hate it, I love it. Uh, yeah, Amazon is, yeah, because Amazon, you sort of had the best of both worlds. But, um, you know, Amazon is still just the marketplace. Yeah, but I can fill up my basket on Amazon and have a whole load of D to C, in inverted commas, products delivered to my house. I don't have to go to all of those websites individually. And I can manage all my subscriptions in one place and I don't have to change my credit card details. You know, it really does simplify if you want to buy a whole load of food and drink products that you can't get in your local co-op. But that's an unfortunate truth for the founders of those companies. If you look in the book, a lot of the uh, these businesses are because um, it's creating this uh, sort of emotional connection. You don't want to connect with the brand on Amazon. You want to go on their website, or you want to get their emails. You want to see what they've got to offer. You want their new products. You know, some of you even use SMS. You know, you want you want to hear from them, and you want to interact directly through the brand. But I think in most cases, brands would love to think that. But there are very few brands that I want to interact with in that way. Correct, and this is this, and this is it. This is why you know really successful D 2 C businesses are a bit of an outlier. They have found the right category and the right offer that solves a big enough problem via D 2 C, and the unit economics work, and they figured out how to do distribution and marketing and all the stuff you have to do. And then when you put all that together, you've got an amazing business. But there's so many um, moving parts. And it all comes back to that. What, and the reason I mentioned right at the start of this is what do they all do well? It's about serving their customer. If they can serve their customer better away from D2C, they would. It's just the best way to serve them. And there's a really good example in the book about how things have changed. So Cornerstone, who do um, men's toiletry products and start off with uh, with, with, with um, shaving, um, they, they were subscription only, but they moved away from subscription only because they discovered subscription only was actually more hassle for some of their customers. You've said a really important thing here. You've said that really successful D2C businesses are really successful because D2C is actually the best way for their customer to receive the product. Not just because they want to be a D2C business, but it's that it makes more sense for the customer, the consumer, to receive the product in that way. 100%. It always has to go back to you know, fulfilling a consumer need. Uh, and Bloom and Wild is, is a great example. So Aaron from Bloom and Wild uh, just worked out the whole buying experience. I mean, Baron was lucky because he was at Bain and he looked at the floristry industry and realized it was a bit broken. And he was like, wow, you know. And for, you know, for a product that's meant to bring so much happiness, it was a bit broken. So it meant that somewhere along that, that chain where it was the giver or receiver was having a bit of a crap time. I absolutely loved that story. I loved that chapter in your book. I didn't realise it. What was the statistic? Something like for 80% of the time that the flower between it's being picked and with the consumer, 80% of that time it's actually in bud closed form. And it's only the last 20% of the time that it's open. And when he realised this, he's like, well, this is crazy. It's like a widely held, uncontested belief that we have to sell the flower to the consumer when it's open. But actually, do we? Because once the flower is open, when I buy flowers down the road in the co-op, I know that the fact that they're open and they've been open on that co-op in that bucket for two days, I'm only going to get another four days out of them. But if I can buy them in bud form, I know I'm going to get a week out of them. And it's genius. And it's just sometimes there's these widely held, uncontested beliefs that you kind of have to say, hang on a second. It was a bit like, do you know what it's like? 
we go all the way back to the beginning of my kind of startup journey, which was with Goo after I left Nestle. And James Averdeek had been told by everybody in the industry, you can't launch glass into the chill chain. The supermarkets will not accept glass into the chill chain. That was just a given. Everybody believed it. But James said, hang on a second. What if the glass doesn't chip? What if it's glass that doesn't break? What if it's packaged properly? And he went and asked them and they said, okay, fine, we'll give it a go. But if you don't challenge these beliefs, you're never going to disrupt an industry, right? And that's it. And this is our job as entrepreneurs. We have to do things differently. If we don't do things differently, what's the point? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I know you'd already learned a lot of this, but having crystallized them and kind of, you know, confirmed these learnings, because that's what these founders that you had interviewed were also saying. Thinking back to Peppersmith, if you had to start again, I know you did lots of things really, really well and it was a very successful business. But what would you do differently now so that it would be even more successful? I do think about this a lot. And I mean, most of all, I don't have I don't really have any regrets because I think we did a good job uh, and it's a business that I'm, you know, I'm very proud of. Uh, But I do think, you know, from what I've learned and this is not just about D2C, it's about, I guess, the consumer goods space over the last sort of 10 years or so. It's just it's so competitive um that you just need quite a lot of fuel in the tank to start and what i mean by that is i think you know i wish we'd raised a bit more money um you know earlier on in our journey i mean we 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 only raised we didn't raise very much we had you know sort of seed angels round um and when i look at some of the what the other brands are doing now either by sort of angel vc or, or you know sort of crowdfunding it's like wow and what would you have done the main thing we would have done is, is some more products for too long, I mean, actually, the first year or so of the business, we had one SKU, one product, and that was the, um, you know, the, the all-natural peppermint chewing gum. Um, so it took us a long time to get um, momentum. So I would have done more products, but also not just about having more products. It's about, you know, creating more presence on, especially on the supermarket shelf. We make quite small products, which is great for DTC, actually. Um, but when it comes to, you know, making a splash on, on a shelf, it's, it's quite hard. But it's also about answering nuts and needs states, isn't it? As soon as you get into a product that has flavours or varieties, by only having one flavour or variety, you're basically cutting out everybody in that marketplace who doesn't like that flavour. And that's one of the things I learned when I was working with Chobani, the US Greek yogurt company. At the time in the UK, something like 60% of flavoured yogurts in the UK were strawberry. And if you didn't have a strawberry yogurt as part of your core range, you were basically cutting yourself out of 60% of the value of the market in that particular segment. And that was a real light bulb moment for me, you know, and it's something that I'm always urging founders to do is to look at what are the biggest sellers in that marketplace and to have a version in terms of how their brand would show up in that flavor to make sure it's part of their range, because otherwise you're not at the races, really. Yeah, exactly. That, that for us, we, you know, we had, um, our mints are great, but they're really small. You know, what happened if we had a, a bigger mint or a chewy mint? Yeah, chewy one. Brilliant. Yeah, because some people don't like hard sweets, right? Yeah. So, and we, we, we just, we just we couldn't do that because we didn't have the resources to do the, um, the, the MPD. Or another one would be sharing bag because lots of confectionery is either in sharing or in singles. I was always a bit careful about that because where uh, the sharing just means eating more. You're actually nice, that means. <laughs> Maybe that was another issue. Maybe that was another issue. Okay, so you would have raised more money. You would have had more SKUs for more presence and more choice. Anything else? No, I I think that we we, we had an interesting diversion um, a few years into the journey uh, where we were focused on uh, dental and uh, the dental benefits. And the reason we did that 
is because um, sort of sales are starting to plateau a little bit. But just looking at brands around the world, and particularly in Scandinavia, who were doing a great job of xylitol and promoting the benefits, it was all around dental health benefits. So we um, we started to sort of double down on the dental health aspect of the brand. And yeah, it sort of worked. Um, we definitely turned some people off who were into sort of the more, you know, because they liked the brand because it was funky and lateral. Uh, but we brought some people into the market. Oh, yeah, get that. This is good for my teeth. So, yeah, we should have it all the time. But it didn't make that much of a difference. It certainly didn't move the dial. And also what I learned from that as well, it's like, yeah, as a team, we weren't that passionate about the dental health space. We've, you know, that's where all the food is. So it's like, oh, dental health is okay, but you know, it's not that exciting. So, um, so we stopped doing it. But I don't, I don't regret that because I think it was the right thing to do. But and what I really liked about our approach to it is we tried it, and when we realised it wasn't making that much of a difference, and actually it was taking a bit of the sort of the f- motivation out of the team, um, we would stop. And so, so we stopped it, and we w- went back to some of the marketing messages that we had previously. Um, so. I don't know. That's sort of rambling on a bit there. Is that is that's a regret because it's not because I believe as a business, when you know when things aren't quite working, you're not on the path that you want to be. You have to make some changes. Maybe it's a learning then rather than regret. Yeah, it was a learning, and I think the real learning is don't be brave to try new things. Along, if well, if if things aren't going in, in the way you want them to, you have to change. Be brave about that, but also make sure you don't bet the farm. So if that choice doesn't work out that you, you know, you're not in a worse place than, than when you started. So what's next for Mike Stevens now that you've got a best-selling book on Amazon? And again, do get the book. It's a really great read. What is next for Mike Stevens? So, I mean, I'm still spending my time. Well, at the moment, I am very much in book launch mode. So talking to lots of people about this book and um, people are saying nice things about it, which is uh, yeah, re- really good for me after sort of two years or more writing the thing. Um, I do some advising. Uh, a mentoring, uh, a bit of consulting as well. But now, because I've done the book, I've been out of personal for a few years, I am thinking about the next big thing. Ooh, and what does that mean? Like a product? I'm plotting in the background, product. So you're going to be a founder again? I'm going to be a founder again. Yeah, so so watch this space. Um, I'm still, you know, I've been looking at various different industries, um, problems to solve for some time. I think we think we've got one. Amazing. Will you come back and tell us when it's up and launched? I will do. And what I will be doing um, is using all the uh, the information that, and the learnings that I've, I've got from the book. So, I th- and I think I would I would recommend this to anyone. If you're going to start, you know, with a new consumer product, start B two C because it is such a brilliant um, way to learn. It's it's sort of low barriers of entry. It means low risk and you get all this instant feedback. It's, you know, it's such a great way to sort of hone your products. Um, But the other learning is B2C probably is not going to be enough. So make sure that you are ready to go further afield, multi-channel, omni-channel to think about, you know, is this product going to be super suitable for wholesaler, retail or wherever else you want to sell it? Export as well. Absolutely export. And then also, you know, how does that work in terms of margins and unit economics? If I set the price to be £3 on D to C, if I sell it in the shops for £5, is that going to make sense? Uh, you know, yeah, spoiler, no, it doesn't. So you've got to get that right at the start. Well, with that piece of advice, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Wishing you the very best of luck with your exciting new venture. I'm really curious to know what it is now. So we'll be watching very closely. Mike, thank you very much. And I hope you have a really great day. Thanks very much, Fiona. It's great to be on.
Thanks again to Strong Roots, simple, real food. 